our Bibles to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, starting in verses 19 to 42, and then over to 55, verse 60. And that will be found on page 617 in your pew Bible. If you forgot to bring your Bible today, 617. That's Lamentations, chapter 3. Starting at verse 19. I remember my afflictions and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he bring grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. And then over to verses 55 to 60. I call in your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you, and you said, Do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and understanding of this great portion of Scripture, even for our hearts this morning, that we might truly be blessed in the word of our living God. Let us bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Father, we come before you once again knowing that we are in your presence and are always in your presence for you are the one who sees all things. You are the one who, like the eagle, goes before us up high, seeing what's ahead and what's behind, knowing that you have nothing but good for us. And so we come before you this morning to praise your name and to lift it on high because we know that we are yours through that precious blood of Jesus Christ that relates us to us so that we can easily say, Father, Father, we are your children, and we are the sheep of your pasture. You are the great shepherd of our souls. You are the one who guides us. You are the one who instructs us. You are the one who guards us in every way, protects us from the evil one, Lord, and uses us for your glory in coming days. We pray, Father, for your blessing on us that we're gathered here this morning, that Jesus Christ might be praised in our hearts and minds, and even with our tongue as we go to this new week to live for you. So bless us, Lord, in every way, and use us for your glory in coming days, even in this week that we might touch a soul here or a soul there by the way we speak, by the way we behave. Teach us that moral goodness we need, Father, that others might see that we're different than the world's teaching, that we are for you and that you are for us, and that we can come to you with every calamity and know that you are with us to do us good. And so help us, Lord, even in our weaknesses and sicknesses that Jesus Christ might be praised. And so we pray for those who are unwell today. We do thank, Father, of Delia. We think of Jean Curie. We think of Lauren Graham. We think of the Cricks. Think of Pastor John and the Traveling and Jane. Pray, Father, for your goodness to be their portion in the coming days. We pray, Father, that your blessing be upon them. We pray, Father, for our pastor even now, that you bless him in the message this morning, that we might be blessed in your presence and know that your word is powerful, mighty, sharper than any two-edged sword, even the cutting to asunder between soul and spirit. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful blessings we have in your word. We thank you, Father, for your personal interest in our personal lives. We thank you, Father, 
that you bless us in every need, not necessarily in every one. So bless us this day, Father, as we come before you. And bless our missionaries, those who've gone out to the far-flung foreign fields, that many might find Christ as their personal Savior. And bless us in our home ministry right here, Father, that the Spirit of God might touch our church family in such a way that we might be a light in a dark place, even this city called Kelowna. But we do pray for all those who are preaching that gospel this morning, preaching it across this land, preaching it across this world, that many souls might find Christ as their personal Savior. So bless us, Father, in every endeavor. And teach us to be those kinds of believers that touch the world around us, that they might know that you have come, and you have saved, and you've taught us to serve. Set us apart for your use in coming days, especially in this coming week. They may be used for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing today? Good. Well, you don't really need to ask how I'm doing. I'm actually levitating. You can't really see it behind the pulpit. I'm levitating about two or three feet off the ground. Uh, I'm really excited to be uh, to be here, obviously, but uh, but also uh, extremely excited to be uh, to be leaving straight after the service. Uh, my friend Sequoia is here from Australia. Welcome, Sequoia. And uh, we're driving down, picking up another buddy in Seattle, and uh, and heading down to California, uh, where I'm going to marry my beloved Jane. And so I'm just absolutely thrilled, and would really covet your prayers, uh, that the Lord would would enable us to reflect the gospel in our marriage. That I would love her as Christ did the church, as He gave Himself up for her and that she would submit to me as unto the Lord. This is ultimately why the Lord created marriage. Obviously, he, he created it for, for our pleasure. He created it in order to, to provide a, an opportunity for, for us to raise children in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we would also ask prayer that the Lord would, would bless us with many, many children. But, uh, but it's just, it's, I just really am, am dumbfounded by the Lord's faithfulness and his, his mercy and grace in, in bringing such a beautiful, godly woman into my life. Um, you know, I was, I was not raised as a Christian. I lived a pretty wild, reckless, sinful life, and, and the Lord saved me in his pleasure at the age of 23, and uh, has just really blessed me beyond anything I could hope or imagine. I just want to praise God for his blessing. So let's, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do marvel at your faithfulness. Lord, you never change. Your mercies really are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Lord, though we are so often unfaithful to you, Lord, you are never unfaithful. You cannot deny yourself. So, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit that you have given us who are truly born again, that you would enable us to hear these words and to be changed by the truths that are presented. We ask, Lord, that you would show us afresh your great faithfulness and that you would give us great joy and confidence and love for you, faithful God. For we ask this all in the most powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're now in our last week of our study of the attributes of God as is laid out in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it, over the past couple months? Uh, I just want to refresh, uh, refresh our memories about what the catechism is. It's actually a, it was set up as a series of, of questions and answers that are, are about doctrine and who God is and who we are. It's set up in order to be, for, for parents to train their children and for, for lay people to be trained, for new Christians to, to get a, a handle and an understanding on the basics of, of, of Christianity. 
And so, uh, really, apart from, from the, the Catechism's position on baptism, I, I really heartily recommend the document. We've been looking specifically at the Catechism's answer to the question, what is God? What is God? The Catechism says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, even though we've looked at each one of these attributes of God individually, I trust that you've been able to see how how they all really interconnect, how they're all really, really facets, like facets of a diamond. So, so we, we, we are, are lifting up God as he, as he presents himself in Scripture and looking at him from different angles to see who he really is. But all of these attributes are integrally, inter, integrally tied together. They're all interconnected. And this morning really is, is no exception as we examine the truthfulness of God. The truthfulness of God. Now, this word has a, a different connotation in our day and age than it did when the Westminster Divines wrote the document in the 17th century. Robert Raymond explains that by affirming that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably true, the Catechism declares that he is logically rational, ethically reliable, and covenantally faithful, and that he has always been, is, and always will be unchangeably so. So essentially, this means that God is faithful. God is faithful faithful in who he is. He is faithful in what he says, and he is faithful in what he does. Now, that's the ground that I'm hoping to cover this morning. We'll see that God is logically rational, ethically reliable, and covenantally faithful. And it's really the last aspect about God's covenant faithfulness that I really want to focus on, spend the majority of our time on. But what do you think of when you think of the word faithful? I believe that, that one of the most common ways that we think of faithfulness is, is in the context of marriage. Now, of course, you're probably not surprised that I would be thinking of that on a day like today. But in his book on the covenant of marriage, about the covenant of marriage, Alistair Begg, the book is called Lasting Love. He quotes the traditional wedding vow, including the phrase, Will you love, honor, and keep the other person, and forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto him or her? So the husband and wife come together in the covenant of marriage, joining together as one flesh. And even though there is a pastor that is presiding over that marriage, over that that celebration, it's not the pastor who's joining them. The husband and, wa- and wife are joined together by God. And Jesus says that what God has joined, let no man tear asunder. So when they make these vows, they're, they're not just, like when Jane and I stand up there on that, on that altar on Friday evening, we're not just making vows to each other, we're actually making vows before God. And most of us here can remember, I'm sure with, with real clarity, when you once did that. When you stood there in front of a pastor, in front of your family and friends, and made a covenant made a covenant with each other and with God. And few things hurt more in life than when somebody is unfaithful in marriage. I've seen the looks on women's faces when they're telling me that their husband is cheating on them. Can't imagine what that pain must be like. You see, the thing is, all of us, all of us are unfaithful to a degree. All of us. And quite often, unfaithfulness in marriage is not just when someone 
when somebody engages in adulterous in an adulterous relationship physically it can happen mentally it can happen emotionally and it's not just unfaithfulness involving the areas of, of a sexual nature unfaithfulness also is is involved whenever you you do not love honor and and cherish that person we're all unfaithful to a degree and so whenever we we are unfaithful it's actually uh, it's we're actually breaking a vow that we've made not just to another person but to God himself and it's it's abhorrent to us we we revile we revile against it because it is it is the, the idea of faithfulness is just part of of who we are as as men and women made in the image of god so when when somebody especially in the in the context of marriage when somebody is 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 mean to us or disrespectful to us it hurts it hurts in a, in a way that 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 no other relationship hurts but we also feel that when when people are unfaithful in their business practices or when friends betray us or people gossip about us unfaithfulness hurts but as i said a moment ago all of us all of us are unfaithful to each other and all of us are unfaithful to God. And that leaves us with a problem. Because as we've seen, God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And we cannot relate to a holy God in our unfaithfulness. We're all desperate. We all need something. We all need someone who could uphold the covenant that we could never uphold. We all need Jesus Christ. We all need his righteousness given to us. Every one of us. There's people here in this room who have been who've been Christians for 60 years. They still need Jesus. They still need the gospel every bit as much today as they did on the day that they were saved. We all do. But sometimes, sometimes the circumstances of life leave us feeling like God is unfaithful. Sometimes we're tossed, we're tossed around by the, by the wind and the waves like the disciples were in the boat. But there Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat because he knew that God is faithful. We talked about how when Jesus was there in the boat, that and this, this, again, this continues to, to just really bend my mind, but that while Jesus was there physically in the boat with those disciples, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is the God that we worship. This God is faithful. So maybe some of you here are, are in the midst of a, of a storm Maybe you're experiencing a storm in your life at this very moment. Maybe you, you've recently experienced one. But live long enough and you will experience trials. You will. It's part of living in a sinful world and it's part of still struggling with the sinful flesh, which we will do until we are glorified in eternity. So what do you do? What do you do when you're, when you're batter, <clears throat> battered around by, by the winds and the waves? Where do you go? 
several years ago when I was living in Australia, I was I was body surfing and I got caught in a in a riptide. Now, if you don't know what a riptide is, it's it's a current that that rushes from close to the shore, and before you know it, it will take you way out into deep water. And this was a, was a particularly rough day in the water, and this rip was quite strong. And I realized that I was being carried along really against my will, and there was no way that, that I would be able to swim against this thing. Now, I knew enough to know that you're supposed to swim parallel to the shore until you get out of it, but, but I was already in, in pretty deep water. I already couldn't touch bottom and was really being battered around by the waves. And I was swimming and swimming, and I was really not making a whole lot of headway. And I was just, not to the point of panic, but, but really getting there, really close. And maybe, maybe you've experienced that, that helplessness. And I was really just, just a hair's breadth away from, from waving my arms and, and yelling for help when my toes touched the bottom. I can feel it like it was yesterday when I just that that joy and relief that there was there was well it was sand it wasn't terra firma but at least it was it was it was ground it was the earth it wasn't the ocean and I was able to to get in and and get to safety Maybe that's you right now maybe you're caught in some type of of riptide and you need you need to find a safe anchor. We just sang it a few minutes ago. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. If you are in Christ, you are anchored firm and deep in the Savior's love. And that's where we have to go in the trials of life. We have to go to God, to the faithful God. So let's, let's consider here, just for a few minutes, how God is faithful in who he is, how God is faithful in what he says, and how God is faithful to his promises. So first of all, God is faithful in who he is. Scripture repeatedly refers to God as the true God the true God. Now, when, the, when he says that, Robert Raymond explains when Scripture says that, he's de it's declaring that, that God is, first of all, metaphysically speaking, the only God who is really there. The only God who is really there. And Louis Burkhoff explains that, that God is the truth, first of all, in this metaphysical sense. That is, in him, the idea of the Godhead is perfectly realized he is all that he as God should be and as such is distinguished from all so-called gods which are called vanity and lies. So we see God described as, as the true God throughout Scripture. It's, it's applied to the Father. We see this in John 17.3 in Jesus' high priestly prayer when he says that, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's also applied to the Son in 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we who are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Or consider the powerful image of the conquering King Jesus in Revelation 19. This gives me chills as I read this. Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is 
the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus Christ. His name is faithful and true. And this stands diametrically opposed to every other so-called God. Psalm 96, 5 and 6 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And it is utter foolishness to trust in a false God, to trust in something that cannot help you. One that is powerless. Powerless. Psalm 115, 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In the Old Testament, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant... They, they brought it and put it in, in, the, their, in their room before an altar of Dagon, their false god. And this, this is amazing. Before the altar, before the, the, the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the statue of Dagon, the idol, fell. It fell over. And they righted it again. And then it fell over and its arms broke off as if the symbolism of it falling over wasn't enough. The gods of the nations are powerless. There is nothing that they can do. There is only one God, the triune Father, Son, and Spirit that is worshipped by Bible-believing Christians. But the world is assaulting the, the, the idea of, of a sovereign God who reigns. You might have seen the movie uh, 2012. I didn't see the movie, but I saw the trailers and that was enough. There's a couple of scenes in the movie which are very telling, very pointed. Nothing that happens in a movie is an accident. They are indoctrinating you to their worldview. So if you do go to the movies... Be very careful, be very dis discerning, and have your guard up because there is a message, there is an agenda. And in this particular movie, in the, the, the Sistine Chapel, now I'm not really um, a supporter of, of the types of paintings and stuff, that the, and things that the Roman Catholic Church uses. I don't believe God's word allows for that. But in the Sistine Chapel, you're probably familiar with the, the painting of of God um, reaching out and, and Adam is, is there with his hand sort of like that. And there's an earthquake and there's a, a big crack that goes down the middle between symbolically God and man. And if that is not symbolism enough, there's, there's a, a huge statue of Jesus in, I believe it's, it's in Brazil, I think it's in Rio de Janeiro. And in one scene in the movie... There's an earthquake there, and the statue of Jesus falls over, and, it, and its arms break off in a, in a situation very reminiscent to what happened, to what really happened with the idol of Dagon. So the world is saying that your God is not real. Your God is powerless to help you. And when you talk to the average Joe or Josephine on the street, they will tell you, they'll say, I don't worship idols. I don't worship idols. But maybe they're involved in a, in a false religion. 
Maybe they're, they're Buddhist or, or Muslim or Hindu. These are all false religions. These are idols. Or maybe this is even somebody who claims to be a Christian, but they have a false idea about who God really is because their concept of God is not based on Scripture. Michael Card sings in one of his songs, they, they made God in their, and I'm, sure, I'm sure the quote is not original with him, but they made God in their own image, so their faith is idolatry. We are often guilty of making God in our image. Or maybe, or maybe they, 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 they have an idolatry of possessions. There's things that they, that they worship. They worship the materialism that is, is so evident in our culture. None of these things can save. None of these things can give comfort when the storms of life come. But because God is faithful in who he is, he is also faithful in what he says. Second point, God is faithful in what he says. God's word is as our frame of reference for, for any understanding of who God is and who we are. Because it's in God's word that he describes himself and reveals his character by the way that he works throughout redemption history. Now, two particular aspects that I want to focus on within this are that God's word, first of all, is infallible. God's word is infallible. It is without error. Because God is rational, neither his own understanding or what he declares contain any inherent contradiction. God's word never contradicts itself. It never contradicts itself. The rule of faith or analogy of faith is that you compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is the only valid authority for interpreting Scripture. So when I stand up here and open up God's Word to you, you don't compare what I, what I say with, with other things that I say. You compare it with the Word of God with the Word of God. When we want to understand who God is, we look to His Word. Again from Burkhoff, God is the truth in a logical sense. In virtue of this, He knows things as they really are. Thus, the truth of God is the foundation for all knowledge. And Raymond says that as, as, God, sorry, as God is the God of truth, He is, he is logical. He is logical, and for him the laws of logic, which, which are the laws of truth, are intrinsically valid because they are intrinsic to his nature. So because God is who God is, he is completely logical, without contradiction. John Frame even goes so far as to say that logic is an attribute of God, that logic is an attribute of God. So because this is true of God, this is also true of his word. So people like to try and, and disprove different aspects of the Bible. There's, there's websites where there's people trying to discredit the truths of the Bible. But the problem is not that the Bible contradicts itself, which we've established it never does, but the problem these people have is that the Bible contradicts them. It contradicts their attitudes and their behaviors, so they have to scramble to make the whole thing irrelevant. You might have heard of, of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. You can, you can still see that. I think it might be actually in the Library of Congress. If you hold up um, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. A deist, so he did not really believe in the God of the Bible, he believed in almost like a divine watchmaker that just sort of wound up the universe and just let it go. But in, in Thomas Jefferson's Bible, he had taken a knife and cut out all of the verses that he did not agree with, the passages he didn't agree with. So if you were to hold up Thomas Jefferson's Bible, it looks like Swiss cheese. Now, we might not do that. We might not practically 
cut out parts of the Bible. But maybe, for all intents and purposes, sometimes we do that by ignoring certain passages of Scripture or by disregarding them. If we do that, we're really no better, doing no better than what Thomas Jefferson was doing. Last, uh, last Sunday, I was talking with Dylan um, after the service, and, and, and he was commenting on how atheists try to do that, how atheists try to, to find errors in the Bible. And he said, well, they're just not looking at it as proper context. They're not reading the verses around it in order to understand what God's Word is really saying. And, and I said to him, Dylan, you have no idea how much it excites me to hear you say that. For an 18-year-old young man to, to understand biblical hermeneutics in such a way that, that, that he is able to, to interpret God's Word correctly because he knows that God's Word doesn't contradict itself? This is a young man who's only been a Christian for a year and a half. This is evidence of a man who knows and loves the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we all have God's word. We are all capable of doing this. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit that enables you to understand. I remember as a, as a brand new believer, coming out of, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of a, a pretty rough background, and, and I'd encountered the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, this is roughly paraphrasing, that if a man takes your, your cloak Give him your shirt too. And I remember going in and talking to, to a friend of mine who was a, was a new, it was a, a little bit, had been in the faith a little bit longer than me, and I, and I said, that's not how it works. If somebody takes something that, doesn't, that, that belongs to you, you go in and knock them over, take it back, and then take something of theirs to make it even. I really believed that because of the world that I'd been living in. But he said to me, John, that's not how it works. He said, if you find something in Scripture that you don't agree with, you don't try to change Scripture to fit your thinking. Your thinking needs to change to fit Scripture. And then, very sadly, about 15 years later, I found out, found out that that friend had left his wife and was dating another woman. So, when I spoke to him, with, I, I believe, meekness and humility, I said, remember when you told me that I needed to submit to what God's Word said all those years ago? Well, brother, I need to remind you of, of that same truth. You need to submit to what God's Word says about your marriage and being faithful to the wife that you married. And sadly, he rejected my words and to my knowledge is still persisting in that relationship. But we all need to submit to what God says in his holy word. Because God's word is not only infallible, it is also authoritative. God's word is authoritative. God is ethically reliable. And so his word is reliable. God's word tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness everything we need to know is here either in direct precept or in principle. You can find out how to live in this life by God's Word. So because God's Word is authoritative, it, it tells us, it's our authority about who God is as well. It tells us reality. So when you read the Bible, what you're, really, what you're really reading is history. You're reading what God has done in the world, what God is doing in the world, and what God will do in the world. So it's history. It's his story. So if we go back to the beginning, back to Genesis, back to the fall, we see immediately, we see God's faithfulness 
right there in the garden. Right there in the garden, in Genesis 3, when God sacrificed an animal to provide skins to cover Adam and Eve because they realized that they were naked and that they were ashamed. And we see right there the promise that, that through the seed, of, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise his heel. This is Christ. This is Christ. He is the lamb that was slain. He is the seed of the woman that crushed the head of the serpent. We can also read about God's covenant faithfulness with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, where after the flood, God promised that he would not flood the earth again. And the sign of the covenant was a rainbow. And I mentioned this before, but it's ironic that the rainbow would be used as a symbol for the, the gay pride movement. Because this is, this is a symbol of God's covenant with Noah, who had destroyed the world because of wickedness. Or consider in God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham, we see this in Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham, though his wife was barren, that through his, through, through his marriage with his wife, they would, he would provide a seed, and through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that, and that covenant is ratified in, there in Genesis 15 and 17. And if you're here this morning as, as a believer who is not a Jew, this is the fulfillment of that covenant. That you are being blessed because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, who was also a type or a picture of Christ. Or also the covenant that God made with David in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, where David said to God, I will build you a house as he was worshiping the Lord. And God said to David, no, I will build you a house. I will make you a house from your seed, from your seed. But obviously, all of these things point to God's covenant faithfulness to Jesus Christ and the covenant in his blood. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here a little bit later on. When Jesus inaugurated, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said in Matthew 26, 27, verses 27 and 28, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So all of those covenants point to the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood as the mediator of a new and better covenant. And so in this, we see that God is also faithful in what he does, in what he does. And this is where I just want to spend a, a little extra time because it's here that we find the most practical application in our lives. Burkhoff says that the faithfulness of God is of utmost practical significance to the people of God. It is the ground of their confidence, the foundation of their hope, and the cause of rejoicing. It saves them from the despair of, to which their own unfaithfulness might easily lead, gives them courage to carry on in spite of their fa failures, fills their heart with joyful anticipations, even when they're deeply conscious of the fact that they have forfeited all the blessings of God. Lamentations, we read this earlier, Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 24 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And God is faithful in what he does because he is faithful to his covenant promises, to his vows. God does what God says God is going to do. Psalm 25.10 says, All the paths of the Lord are of steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So here we're going to see that God is faithful to punish sin. God is faithful to punish sin. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. Because God is holy and just, all sin must be punished. It was either placed on Christ when he was on the cross or remains on the head of the unbeliever. And because when someone sins against an infinite God, the punishment has to fit the crime. So the punishment is eternal and infinite. Where the unbeliever is punished in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no hope of relief, no hope of reprieve. God always punishes sin. In Psalm 73, Asaph struggled when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to, to Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he goes on for, for several verses to describe their prosperity and describe how it seemed that God was blessing them. Now we're tempted to do that too, aren't we? Maybe when you're in school and you see a girl who is popular because she dresses immodestly. Or you see a boy who is popular because he is disrespectful to his teachers or he uses drugs and alcohol. Or maybe in the workplace you see that, that, that people get ahead by kissing up to the boss or by cheating or lying. Or maybe in business you see people who get ahead through unethical business practices and you're tempted like Asaph to think that God is not faithful to punish sin. But Asaph found the answer there in verse 19. He said, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. They're like the grass of the field. They burn away. They burn away. But it is the righteous, those who are called righteous in Christ, that are blessed by God. And God is always faithful, not just to punish sin, but also to discipline his children. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, there's, there's a slight nuance here between, uh, in some texts, between punishment and discipline. The reality is, if you are a Christian, your ultimate punishment has been placed on Christ. But if you are in Christ, then God will discipline you as sons and daughters because he loves you. Because he loves you. Look there at verse 3. The writer of Hebrews has just set Christ as the example who had, had, because of the joy that was set before him, despised the shame that is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son that he receives. So we should be encouraged when God disciplines us because of our sin. Because it is a sign of God's love for us. That God is not just leaving us to wander and wax worse and worse. 
because he loves us, he is not going to let us drift away. He is a faithful father. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, for a short time, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 10. Now, of course, as it says in verse 11, it's not fun. It's not pleasant to be disciplined by the Lord. It's painful. But when you realize that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it, there is joy in that. There is a joy that transcends the circumstances that you're facing. God is also faithful even when he doesn't seem like it. God is faithful even when he doesn't seem like it. Sometimes in the trials of life, we're tempted to think that God is not there, that he's forsaken us. Now, last week we looked at Job. We looked at Job and we saw that, that there at the end, Job wavered. And though God rebuked him for it, God blessed him in the end. And that Job's later blessing was greater than anything that he had previously. In Habakkuk 3, this is the one we read earlier, 17 to 19, though, sorry, that was Lamentations, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19, though the fig tree should not blossom and there's no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on high places. We need to understand that whatever our circumstances, God is at work for his glory and for our good. As I said last week, we all deserve hell. We all deserve hell. So anything better than hell that we get is a profound blessing. And furthermore, whatever circumstances you are currently in are God's best for you. They are better than whatever alternative. Even if it's serious illness, even if it's relational difficulty, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus because God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. So you can rejoice that it is those very circumstances that God has ordained to transform you, to make you like Jesus. So whatever circumstances, we realize that God is at work for his glory and for our good. Turn with me for a moment, please, to John chapter 11. I'm sure you're familiar with what happened here. In John chapter 11, we see that Lazarus was ill. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Think about that for a moment. It was God's will that the Son be glorified. And we don't know the nature of the illness, but whatever it was, Lazarus was so sick that he died. That he died, and this was God's will. We see it again and again in Scripture where people are, are blind because God is to be glorified in their deliverance. Or people are sick so that God would be glorified in their deliverance. Now, God may not physically deliver us from our illness. And all of us, if the Lord tarries, are going to experience an illness or an accident that will usher us out of this life into the next. But if you are born again in Jesus Christ, those circumstances will deliver you. They will deliver you. 
Because God is faithful. He's faithful to his children. Finally, I want us to see that God is faithful to save his people. That God is faithful to save his people. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, your salvation does not depend on your faith. Your salvation depends on God's faithfulness. If your salvation depended on your faith or anything that was in you, you couldn't stay saved for one nanosecond. You would fall away. We all would fall away. Because we often are faithless. But thank God that our faith isn't in faith, but our faith is in God, the faithful one. 2 Timothy 2.23, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Salvation is a gift from God from start to finish. You didn't make yourself saved, and you don't keep yourself saved. When Peter told the Jewish Christians about the salvation of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11, they, they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles has God has also granted repentance that leads to life. Do you see that? God has granted repentance. Repentance is a gift that comes from the Lord. Where our salvation is by the Spirit in John 3. We are not born of the flesh. We are born of the Spirit, we who are born again. And God has given us his Holy Spirit as a seal, as a down payment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, anointed us and who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Beloved, this is true for all of us who are in Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We already looked at Hebrews 12 and God's faithfulness to discipline his children, but again we see there that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He has written the story of our lives. And if you are truly in Christ, this story has the happiest of all endings because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. So there you have it. That's the, our last sermon in my series on the attributes of God. Now, I've taken a couple of months to cover this, but each one of these, each one of these areas, each one of these attributes of God would take a lifetime of sermons if we really wanted to do them justice. So really, what, what, I, what I'm trying to do each week each week, not just when we study specifically the attributes of God, but each week when I stand up here to preach, I want to lift up, to exalt God and his attributes. And by his grace, to show us where we are in relationship with God. And by God's grace, I'm going to keep on doing this every week, as long as the Lord gives me breath. But it's not just, it wouldn't just take a lifetime of sermons to cover these things. We are going to be exalting and praising God for these things for all eternity. For all eternity. Marveling. Exalting. Worshiping. The God of the universe. 
treasuring him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So do you know this God? Are you here this morning as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ? Do you know this faithful God of the Bible? I would encourage you, if you do know him, ask him that he would enable you to know him better. And if you don't know him, then I pray that you would be convicted of your sin and challenged about your unfaithfulness towards him and would turn with a heart of repentance to receive, to receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now in a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. And it's really a, a celebration 